0: Welcome to the third episode of Thinking Like X, a podcast by Think. I'm Malhav. In this episode, I interview Adam Disqui, an environmental engineering master's student at Texas Tech University, who earlier served in the US Air Force as a bioenvironmental engineer. I met Adam last summer, that is 2019, when he was interning at Raytheon in Tucson, where I'm doing my PhD. Uh, In fact, this episode was recorded then. While most of the people we have interviewed and plan to interview on this podcast are well-established in their field, Adam isn't as yet. He's a student. However, he makes up for that with some very useful insight into how engineers think. Added to that, his experience in the US Air Force makes the discussion even more interesting. This episode is titled, Thinking Like an Engineer. Engineering is something Think does not currently have expertise in, but we do eventually want to expand into engineering education. In order to facilitate that, we will have a number of engineers on the podcast. In fact, we do have another episode already recorded with Vidur Korshish, my cousin, who is an aerospace engineer in California, who has just started a company which facilitates the launching of satellites. I hope you enjoy this episode. Towards the end, Adam narrates a particularly interesting experience while at the U.S. Air Force. While it isn't strictly related to the topic at hand, it was too interesting and scary to not include. So let's begin. Hi, I'm Madhav, and with me is Adam Disquee. That's right. right. Uh, Adam is an engineer. He's doing his master's at Texas Tech. Uh, and he is currently interning with Raytheon over the summer. Uh, he was earlier in the U.S. Air Force before starting his masters,
1: right? Yep, that's all right.
0: Okay, perfect. Um, so we were just having a conversation before the before we started recording, and uh, what I wanted to ask Adam was: um, so we want to take an engineering problem, an engineering problem which you've which you've worked with, and see how you went about um, attempting to solve that problem. What, what were the things you kept in mind, and so on?
1: Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> part of the training, I guess, at least being uh, an engineer, is essentially everything we do is problem solving. So to me, it's just like doing your regular job. But um, at least when I was in the Air Force, the, the way that I kind of learned how to problem solve was essentially through this um, thought process of identifying, analyzing, control. Uh, And so that was essentially how we addressed every problem. First, we wanted to know, um, we wanted to identify what it was we were looking at. And we wanted to analyze it by either collecting data or, you know, understanding the data, if the data is the problem itself. And then controlling it could simply be uh, learning how to use it, use that data, uh, or, you know, to solve the problem, or in some cases to mitigate um, a health risk issue. So, uh, like for example, um, when I was in the Air Force, uh, I did bioenvironmental engineering. And uh, on the state side, we did a lot of interesting things related to industrial hygiene and preventative medicine. Um, but when we would deploy, we had kind of a, um, like a response capability. Essentially our job was anytime that uh, an unknown threat would come to a base, they would you know halt all operations, they would cordon off the area, And then they would send in units like me to figure out what it is. So like this one one example that we had, um, we were somewhere out in the Middle East, and uh, this random truck, this little bitty tiny white pickup with a bunch of barrels in the back, drove up to the main gate of this base. And uh, the security people tried getting him to turn around and to leave, and and he got flustered, and this individual just got up out of the vehicle and left. And so they freaked out. They were like, why would this person just leave a truck? (laughs) And, uh, and so they shut it down, and all these EOD people did their thing to make sure it wasn't explosives. But at the end of the day, we eventually wanted to figure out, you know, what's in the back of this truck? So uh, I was able to respond alongside the fire department. And, uh, you know, we set up this big decontamination tent, and uh, we hopped in these level-A suits with uh, some uh, SCBAs, which is like a breathing apparatus, kind of like what a fireman would use going inside a, a house. Okay. And then uh, we basically just, we, uh, we grabbed some of our gear. Um, we were trained in how to, uh, to use like, things like a HapSite, which is um, just a backpack version of a mass spec. And uh, essentially what it does is it just draws in air samples and then it slams these particles uh, in this like, we call it like the easy bake oven. Um, not to get too specific or anything, but essentially what it does is it just tells you what the, uh, the chemical makeup of it is. And so we would uh, we went out and collected samples, collected some liquid samples. In this case, it was a liquid. And then we brought those liquid samples back, and then we um, ran a bunch of different tests. It ended up being just a bunch of, like, petroleum waste, nothing too crazy. But it was still really strange how this individual just, like, abandoned this truck yeah. at a base. It really got everybody then out of shape. Um, so that's just kind of an example of, like through training at least, like, what was, the, what was the problem? Well, the problem was is that this truck had showed up with an unknown substance in the back of it, and we had absolutely no idea what their intentions were. Um, were they just, were they running out of gas? What, you know, why the heck did they show up? Nobody knew who they were. Um, and then, so that's, the, that's kind of the root cause. And then the next question was, we wanted to prioritize what's that waste. And so then that's when we identified it. Once we had identified it, now we have the data, and then we, based on our experience, know what to do with that data. You know, like, if it was explosives, we would have completely done something different than when we found out that it was just sludge. Okay. Since it was sludge, we were just like, oh, yeah, not a big deal. Well, we know how to, to get rid of that. And so, um, and that's just, like, one example of uh, something that I experienced in the Air Force, at least. Okay.
0: So it seems like one of the things which seems to be important for this sort of problem-solving is you need to have... A relatively good understanding of some different areas so for instance you need to understand what the chemical makeup of things is right because you need that understanding you need some if it was something else you would need um, to know about explosives you would need to know about all of these different things so um, so, uh, so so there's a mixture of biology physics chemistry and so on. And I guess to an extent you're trying to figure out why this person left. So there's, an, there's a bit of so, uh, psychology and so on which gets into Absolutely, it as yeah. well. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So um, let's take another example just sure. to illustrate a little bit more.
1: Let's see. So um, before I, I had interned at Raytheon, nothing really special goes on there. It's, it's really just, you know, just production basically. But another place that I interned was actually at General Dynamics. And I was actually interning in uh, an area that is related to what I'm going to school for. You know, I'm going to school for environmental engineering. And a couple summers ago, I had the opportunity to be an environmental engineer at this particular manufacturing plant. And the problem was that we, and so this, this example is related, no one told me to fix this problem. It was just something that we kind of stumbled upon. And so essentially what was happening was we had these huge hydraulic presses that were two or three stories. Um, had, I mean, I'm talking thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of gallons of um, hydraulic fluid. And these things were old, and the seals were leaky, and so they just the hydraulic fluid would just ooze down the side of these things. And then it would ooze down on the floor, and then it would be collected in these trenches, and those trenches would... It was essentially like a trough system, and then we had pumps that pumped all that to like a, uh, a staging location, and then we would pay this guy to come out with the truck with a, uh, a pump on the back, and he would suck all that uh, dirty, grimy uh, hydraulic fluid, and then he was getting paid like seven dollars a gallon to dispose of it. So knowing that, you know, we were they were spending like close to seven hundred thousand dollars a year paying this this random dude to come get rid of a problem, I simply asked the question, just as an intern, I was like, why don't we try to capture it before it in, ends up on the floor? Or why don't we try to filter it or do something with it uh, instead of paying this guy to, to mess with it? And so they kind of looked at me crazy. And and to give you a little bit of background on like, who we were working with, these guys didn't necessarily have engineering degrees. They didn't necessarily go to college. They uh, were in their 50s and 60s. They hadn't had new thoughts come in this building in probably a decade. And so it was It was like, well, this is the way we've always done it. What do you mean? And so my idea was um, I wanted to – I was like, well, I mean, I've taken all these classes on how to do wastewater treatment and land application. I was like, why don't we just use gravity? Why don't we, like, set up a system with uh, – where we could, we could separate some of the, the hydraulic fluid from, like, the water? Because this was, like, an open trench, right? So when it rains, it just – water gets in there, when they pressure wash the machines, you know, that, that's how the water gets in there for that, too. And um, if nothing else, we could at least reduce our volume, so we don't have to pay this guy as much. And so then they were like, well, what do you need to, to set up an experiment or, or uh, to be able to test this theory? And so what we ended up doing is we took, we actually buy soap to clean off these uh, presses, and they come in like 400-gallon totes, these big plastic metal frame around them. And uh, we just collect them. And they just get sticking, they, they stick them in the back of the factory um, until they get a whole bunch of them. The guy comes out of the semi and takes them off. And they like pay this guy to get rid of those too. It's so, like, why don't we just cut those open? Um, my dad happened to work there. He was facilities or whatever. So he gave me the permission to chop these things in half. And uh, basically what we did is we, we took a bunch of 400 gallon totes and we cut like the top quarter off of like a, a two or three of them. And then we set them up kind of like a staircase. And then we had a, uh, just like a diaphragm pump that we hooked up to uh, some air, uh, com- air compressor. They'd just have compressed air all over the place. So we just like plugged in with the hose. And uh, so this pump would, would suck out this hydraulic fluid from the trench, and then we would pump it into the top one. And then as the top one would get full, uh, it would, the top part would run over to the, the one below it. Mm-hmm. And then as that one got full, same thing, then it would run over to the next one. And So eventually at the very bottom, you have, uh, you know, the hydro. And in, in our case, at least, the uh, the hydro was was on top. So it's an oil-based type. Uh, so it kind of floats on top of water. And so as you let it settle, all the hydro is staying on top. All of the the solids, like gravel, crap on the floor, that would settle at the bottom. And then the water would be kind of trapped in the middle. And so we were actually capturing semi-clean hydro. And then uh, at the very bottom one, then we would decant that off with like. And then we would uh, we put that in drums. At first, we were selling. We were that's what we were taking the guy to have hauled off. And we were able to reduce their waste by like forty percent doing that. And then we had, we later we came back around. We were like, well, how clean does it need to be so we can reuse it? Um, and we were able to find by literally just contacting a company that deals with screens, and uh, we ran it through like this special type of media that the hydro oozes through. And then we were able to, to completely recycle the hydro, and so that was that was kind of the solution. Um, so ultimately, we took a seven hundred thousand dollars a year uh, cost of this company, and we brought it all the way down to about a hundred thousand dollars. And uh, they upgraded the system after we did kind of a proof of concept, which is kind of like an engineering term. It's like when you come up with an experiment and you want to uh, you want to go ahead and make it a permanent thing. You know, you got to find the resources to be able to do this. And so we we contacted a company that does. Uh, nicer versions of this Uh, they have like settling basins that are real nice and pretty and they built like a a system around it they put some steps in and so um... it was real nice and so uh... from what I understand they they went with it they cut out a a portion of a wall in one of the buildings and put this thing in so there's like the the stairs to it on the outside of the building and then the systems directly inside that wall yeah, so the problem was we were just wasting stuff and nobody would ask the question, why did, Why are we spending so much to haul this off? And, uh, you know, honestly, the root cause on this one would probably be, why are the hydraulic presses leaking so much hydro? Not, why is it ending up in a trench so we can clean it? But uh, as an environmental engineer, you know, I, I have to rely on a mechanical engineer to figure that one out. I'd have to uh, get one of my colleagues to look at that. But all I can like tell you is there's there's a lot of ways that we can recycle things. It's not just cardboard, it's not just you know aluminum cans and plastic bottles like you can there is absolutely um, recycling potential in industrial industries as well
0: okay cool so so just abstracting away from the particular problem sure so you um so there's there's a there was actually an existing solution to this problem right you have this dude who comes in and picks up the stuff and takes it away right we're paying him a lot of money (laughs) it's highly inefficient so you see this inefficiency, and you're mm-hmm. looking now to decrease. So the, so now the problem now shifts from solving that problem to get, trying to get a better solution to that problem yeah. Because of the, to reduce the inefficiency, to reduce the cost.
1: So engineers, um, at least in my school, one of the first things we learn is um, we learn about the fancy term of ROI, which is return on investment. And uh, companies don't hire engineers unless there is uh, money to be saved. Uh, you know basically that's what it comes down to and so as an engineer you know your problem problem solving capabilities is all limited to the bottom line how can, how can we save this this company money or how can we make this company money so uh, that's that's kind of what both of these situations i guess one was you know more of a, a response using kind of a technical side but what i find most interesting is the latter which is the one that i learned at general dynamics which is saving money saving resources I mean, who knows what this guy was doing with it? He was probably just throwing it in the trash after we leave. So it it makes me feel good to be able to say that, hey, like we're able to conserve resources. I mean, yeah, we're saving saving the company money, but um, hopefully we're not wasting. So that's kind of cool.
0: Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So so the, you you take a problem and you're mm-hmm. try, you see an inefficiency and you're trying to reduce that. Mm-hmm. And then when you're when you when you see that inefficiency, now you're trying to look for solutions to that, right? So, what made you think of putting those, whatever those, those gallon jars, whatever, the, like the 400 gallon yeah. jars? To- yeah. The- um, do you? Is there anything which
1: you can point to which made you think of that over something else? So, uh, I mean, really, what it comes down to is. Uh, the school that I go to, I guess. So the school that I go to is um, in the civil and environmental engineering department. Um, it's taught by a bunch of retired, uh, I, we call them the, the white guys, but there are all these gray beards that, uh, that, that all are professional engineers. They, some guys built roads. Other guys were a part of the, the 60s and 70s when we had a big expansion of building dams. Mm-hmm. And then others came from industry. At least at our school, um, all of our professors come from industry. None of them are your traditional PhDs. Go straight into teaching and doing research. Um, so they're all professional engineers. And so the problems that they give us from day one are all related to their career. So you know, if if the guy that we're learning from in this particular class, he worked for the Texas Department of Transportation. A lot of his problems are going to be related to uh, highways, and you know. Stormwater that run you know runoff from the streets that type of thing. Um, we have other people that they worked in industry. They worked for defense contractors uh, doing environmental related uh, super fun site cleanups especially. And so a lot of that in in that case it's you want to you want to kind of stop the uh, the expansion the growth of the contamination. You want to go ahead and stop it before we know what it is. Like I don't know what it is, but we just got to stop it. An example of that. One of the things that we've learned is um, with wells, you can actually use. Uh, and this is common knowledge if you're like, familiar with the, the topic, but a lot of times what you can do is, say you have an Air, an Air Force base that has a flight line, and those planes leak uh, contaminants, and then it all runs off the flight line, and then it gets into the ground. As it's soaking through the ground, it's permeating. Uh, what we can do is we can actually we can drill wells, water wells, and we can pump that water out at a fast enough rate where we lower the water table far below where the contamination is as to prevent... This contaminations from traveling through the water. And uh, so that's what, that's what a lot of uh, Superfund sites, the ones that I've studied at least, uh, the examples that we've seen in class, they're like, well, we, uh, we can't possibly dig out a trillion pounds of dirt, but we can limit the exposure and uh, the growth of this plume effectively. And how we're going to do that is we're just going to pump out tons of water. And so that's one of the reasons why, if you look at every Air Force base, they have golf courses. Oh. There's two things that they use that water for. One, they're using the groundwater. Uh, they're forcing the groundwater to drop really low underneath the flight line area to prevent contamination, uh, to continue to spread the plume. And so they take that water and they're like, well, what are we going to do with it? Well, we can, um, we can just let everybody water their yards, and we can make a really nice golf course with it. And they also use it to treat wastewater, so when you use the bathroom, flush the toilet, uh, they treat it to a, a certain standard, and then they discharge that as well, because uh, an Air Force base is just like uh, any other smaller town. They're going to have to pay the larger municipality to get rid of it, so it's cheaper to go ahead and use it on site, so they'll water the grass with it, essentially. Okay. So.
0: Okay, so is, so this particular problem, is it, the solution, is it similar to the, the solution which you had for the... Yeah, uh,
1: so we, so we, uh, a lot of our classes, when we do like the design classes, uh, you kind of, you, they break it down through like the mechanics, you know, you're looking at uh, thermo, and, and then like solids, and fluids, and uh, so you typically learn like the basics behind the theory, and then they start giving us... Uh, real-world problems to do homeworks and projects and stuff on. Um, And then settling solids through physical methods is like a whole class. And so I'd already taken a sedimentation class. So to give you a little bit more background like what I went to school for. So environmental engineering, our program is unique. uh, And there's probably other programs out there like it. But we are specifically taking classes to learn how to design and improve wastewater and drinking water treatment plants. And so we do everything from, like, the uh, pretreatment of water before it gets there to the, you know, sedimentation, coagulation, flocculation, and then disinfection. And then you have all the other, you know, uh, more specific advanced treatment stuff. And so those are all the classes that we take. Um, I mean, it's it gets all the way down to the point where we learn how to apply water on agriculture land, use land application. Um, so there's... I would say that, in that particular case, I was lucky enough to be far along enough in my program that I had already seen how we use physical methods to to separate contaminants, and I recognized that okay, well, oil and water those they don't like to mix, mm. and so if you give it enough time, they will just naturally through chemistry separate, and then you just have to figure out you know how are you gonna take the one off the other and so it was uh it was kind of an, it was an easy process but okay
0: yeah of. so so you're using knowledge which you learned in a particular context and now you are using it in a different context right yeah. so using it in the context of this particular general dynamics thing for sure uh, so that's so that's another aspect of engineering thinking if you want to call it that which is you, you have to be able to take things from particular contexts and apply them in other places, right? Solutions that you've already seen mm-hmm. and apply them in other places.
1: Yeah. Okay, that yeah, sounds... It's, uh, it's fun, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: it definitely does sound fun. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, so just coming back to what engineering involves, um, so there are problems that you need to solve. In order to do that, you come up with solutions to those problems, such as the the thing you did with the gallon jars or the water gallon jars or whatever, uh, and then you you mentioned something you mentioned a proof, a proof of concept right you mentioned that so now you need to i guess very cheaply test whether this particular thing is going to actually do what you think it was going to do, right because you're designing it without actually doing it,
1: yeah. Okay. So, my, so my, my engineering field is unique in the way that there are so many variables that you have to take into account. It's, so I like to give my brother a hard time. He's an aerospace engineer from Oklahoma State University. And the stuff that he does for a living, you can simulate a good majority of it um, using CAD softwares and some other things like CATIA and stuff. Um, when you're dealing with things like temperature and environment, and just random uh, amalgamations of of just waste. It's not like you're like, okay, I know exactly what the percentage ratios of this particular piece of metal are. I know that it's gonna, you know, when I when I press it and form it in a certain way, or if I heat it up a certain way, it's gonna act like this based off its modulus. Like we learn that stuff in like the lower level classes just to get a taste of it. But environmental engineering is there's so many unknown variables. It's really difficult to Be able to give a a like a a guaranteed solution without showing basically a small version of it and so that's kind of one of the things that we do a lot in my program Um, we have labs completely dedicated to us just experimenting with random stuff i mean like well we uh one of the classes i took for advanced water treatment we were given like our class was given like a five thousand dollar budget from the department, and they were like, go online, we want you to find whatever you want to try using to clean this water, and then um, propose that to us, it's Amazon, wherever, show us the vendors, show us the best price, and then you'll work with your teaching assistants to go ahead and get that stuff purchased. We came up with random stuff. We, one of the things we chose, which was kind of funny, was um, we went through this catalog with all these different things for like... Um, like, for fish with aquariums. Like, one of them was a UV water purification system. We had the question, would, like, a water uh, UV system for a fish tank, would that purify our water uh, as a disinfection method for drinking water for us as humans? We bought one of those. We tried that. Um, It works, but you have to, like, circulate it for, like, 24 hours in a closed system. Uh, So you're getting high contact for long periods of time of a UV lamp. Um, So uh, we... what I'm getting at here is essentially um you have to you have to be able to MacGyver some of this stuff. You have to make like uh basically experiments out of trash, stuff that's just sitting around sometimes to be able to um figure this stuff out. Other options that we could have done, which we did do before we purchased the equipment, we found a vendor and an outside smaller company and we told them, Hey, we know that you guys are specialized in the you know, whatever this type of equipment is. We're going to bring you a couple of water samples. And we'd bring them like a 55-gallon drum of it, drop it off, and we'd say, tell us how you'd recommend us to, uh, you know, clean it. And then they're always going to sell you the Cadillac of whatever. The most expensive thing you can come up with. And so then being the, the engineer on site, it, you're, kind of your job is to go back to the bosses and say, hey, this guy's full of crap. He's going to give you, uh, you know, this, Hundred thousand dollar solution to a problem when we could do it for ten thousand in supplies and a little bit of labor. Um, I mean, if that's what you want to do, boss, we can go ahead and do that. But I'd recommend something you know a little less uh, advanced. So that's that's kind of one thing.
0: Okay, that's that's pretty cool. So so what you're doing there is so you're you're taking something uh, small and. So then, then, there's the aspect of scaling, right? Because mm-hmm. you start with doing a small experiment on, like, with a small uh, setup, yeah. and then you need to scale it up.
1: Um, can things
0: go wrong in that process? Oh,
1: for sure. Um, like one of the things we had to tweak uh, was our inlet for this particular process. If uh, if your volume coming in was if your flow was was pretty fast, it was gonna it mixes up the water. And so then you're not allowing for the settling effect to happen. So what we actually did was we took a, um, basically a metal, a metal, I don't know, I would, I would describe it as a weir, but essentially what it was, it was a box. And we attached this to the end of the hose and then we submerged that down to the bottom. And so the, when the water comes out, it hits the these three sides of this box and then it forces the water to, to kind of tumble a little bit and then kind of float out slowly. And then in this long, like, box tubing, um, what it was, it was like four-inch by four-inch metal uh, just scrap that we had found, We stuck the hose on one end, drilled a bunch of holes in it, and so then the water flows in, and then it seeps out of those holes, and so it just, it keeps the water, uh, this liquid and laminar flow, because we don't want to disturb the water. Um, We also had issues based on the size. We needed to be able to store these, some of the excess because once it started working the night shift was like great we have a solution to getting rid of all this crap and then they were just completely contaminating the system what i mean by that was they were just they were overfilling it too fast and so then the physical processes weren't able to take place because we needed it to settle take time so it needed to just kind of trickle in there and so there was a lot of flow rates that we had to calculate Um, based on the size, I, I forget exactly what it was, it's been a few years, but it was something like slower than, um, three gallons per minute GPM. Um, if we kept it below that, then that was, we found that it worked best. When it was scaled up, uh, what you had is, uh, basically there was a, we call it a tank farm, and so there are these big, uh, storage tanks, big, I mean huge, like, uh, I mean, the size of houses, and um, we had one of those that they used. Basically, they just dump it into that, and then as it would fill up, there was like a little bobber in there, and then it would kick on that pump, and that pump would draw from the bottom, and it would send it over uh, through this PVC piping over to the treatment staging place, and then from there, it would go through the process. And so, we were able to figure all that out by fine-tuning it, and, and basically, this thing would run autonomously without an individual watching it, uh, the thing you have to be careful about, though is regulatory agencies, and so um, the the key here is that we were not treating the water because treatment means that you have a permit to be able to treat that water. Uh, what we were saying is we were polishing the water it 's just like semantics, honestly, uh, but what we were doing is we were just making sure that the contamination that we had the hydraulic fluid leaking from the uh, the presses we were keeping it at its like pure state of what we were getting it from the source so that we could handle it um, without all the other contaminants and then of course you gotta factor in cleaning and disposal and I mean, there's all these different and you have to have contingencies for example like what if it stops working or what if the night shift does decide to overfill your system what a uh, what engineering controls do you have to be able to predict that something went wrong and to stop it from happening So, I mean, where was the water going? We were recycling it back in so we could reuse it. Uh, So uh, it would go through a filter press. Essentially, it was just like we pump it through these uh, certain type of filters, and then it would ooze through all these different layers, and at the very end, it was like pretty clean hydro. And then we would take that hydro, and then it would go back over to uh, where we... Uh, insert the hydro back into the, the stuff so it was kind of just a recycling process trying to limit the amount of waste okay that sounds pretty cool so so now when you're um when, you, when you're taking
0: something and you're trying to uh scale it up yeah um so one of the um so so then so we, you're starting at a smaller scale you're mm-hmm. starting with something small and then you try it out and so on, and that allows you to take it to a larger scale and so on. Yeah. So what the role of an engineer in that is, is to, to like narrow down onto possible solutions, right? I guess. So yeah. there's a space of an infinite number of solutions to yeah. a particular problem, yeah. right? I could randomly come up with solutions mm-hmm. to problems, 99% of them won't work, right? Mm-hmm. So what you're using your expertise for is to narrow down that mm-hmm. range of solutions. Um, and that you base on your understanding of chemistry, of biology, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and then you, once you're in that constrained space of solutions, that allows you to, um, that, that, that now, those are the ones you test out, right? Those are the ones you actually play with. Yeah. And then you, a subset of those. To, go, to go hit to back scale. on
1: the one thing you'd mentioned, I don't think I quite was clear in my, my last comment was about like the scalability of things. And so, like obviously, engineers we learn to install like uh, safety factors. And so, if you know you need five hundred, ga- I'm just making up a random five hundred gallons, then you would say, well, I need a safety factor of two. And so you would factor that in, and uh, you know you'd make it a little bit, a little bit bigger. Uh, so yeah, there's a little bit of planning. Um, you can't just design things without knowing. So what's our operational capability? How much? What's our what's our waste incoming flow rate? How much are we getting? Uh, what's the production light like in that particular period of time? Were we in low production? Were we using these presses a lot? Uh, what's the worst case scenario? Like if I was running these presses every single day, every single week, and you we were getting rain every single day, like what would that look like? What would that event look like? That's what you would want to design it for. And then uh, you'd have to factor in things like like space. I mean, there's just so many different things. You need industrial engineers to help you determine some of that. You're going to have to get tradesmen in to to help with with some of that. So it's scalability can be really difficult. Um, Like when you're doing water treatment plants, you typically look out 20 years in the future, and you're like, hey, in 20 years, what's the population going to look like? How much water are we going to be expecting that we need to treat? In a manufacturing setting, it's a little bit different because your workload is a little bit more limited. So you could say... Let's look out three years in advance. Three years is typically your return on investment anyways. So any uh, engineering design that you recommend, you typically want it to be under three years of return on investment. Uh, and then once that happens, then you can look at better, uh, you yeah, know, you can look at that Cadillac type, type product. But cheaper isn't always better. It's more about, um, you know, just making it easier on the guys that are producing the parts, making money for the company. Um, I mean, you can always, there's always time to innovate. And so what you wanna do with that is you wanna make sure that you collect data throughout the process. Uh, you wanna keep good contacts with stuff. Uh, lean manufacturing, I don't know if you've heard of that term before, but it's, it's kinda of related to Six Sigma. Uh, some people like it, some people hate it. Uh, in my school, we learn it, so it's a class we take. Uh, we take that, and we take engineering ethics, both of those, and so then you kinda of learn. And that's honestly, that's where everybody from my school reason why projects are so easy at my school for us to solve is because we're all taught to use lean manufacturing uh, and so the problem solving aspect is very clear cut for all of us cuz we all know okay first we have to visualize what the problem is we need to you know draw a process map and figure out you know all the different variables that are coming in there and once we have identified those we want to look at like the risk assessment codes and the risk could be like uh, i don't know radionuclides in water or uh, really, really acidic, or really, really basic water. I mean, those are, are going to determine the types of treatment that you can use. Uh, is there a lot of sediment in it? I mean, there's just so many different variables. It's, uh, it's kind of fun. It's like the ultimate puzzle. And so um, when we do these design classes, uh, I think it's enjoyable. That's why I was able to get a master's degree, because I found it fun. So. That's Okay. So
0: one of the other things which you talked about briefly was um, other people making errors when using your equipment, right? And yeah. you need to plan for that. Yeah. Um, that's, that's an interesting thing, which yeah. is kind of peculiar to engineering
1: and areas like
0: engineering. For sure. Um,
1: the best way I can describe it is, like, imagine playing with Legos and you're following the Lego diagram. The Exact way that you told them to do, and then all of a sudden things just start putting parts together that don't belong, and they're adding pieces together that don't that you're not supposed to use yet, and then they just throw things together out of order, and um, it could cause things to fail. Uh, at least in the manufacturing side, you we rely very heavily on our operators, the hourly type people that are carrying out the process. Uh, so typically, most places will have work instructions, which is the item that the operator uses on a daily basis. So work instruction could be, I mean, it's literally step-by-step like Lego diagrams. So even if they're not good at reading, it doesn't matter, just follow the pictures. Uh, They usually don't mess up. And then it's very specific. If you run into a problem, if you don't see something exactly like this, come get us before you make a decision because they might make a mistake. And they could get hurt, or they could cost us lots of money, or they could bring the assembly line down completely because they broke something. And then the next thing you have is manufacturing procedures. A manufacturing procedure is a little bit more broad than a work instruction. A manufacturing procedure is typically the using a particular piece of equipment. So in this case, I had to write from scratch manufacturing procedure on how to use this water treatment system. Uh, we would determine who gets to use it, who's allowed to use it, what things to look for, uh, you know, to, to be able to specifically write out, this is when it's running right, this is what you should expect, and when it's not working right, this is what you should expect, and then to show examples. So it's kind of fun because in those, uh, you get to sabotage yourself. You get to show what it looks like when the system's overflowing or when the hydraulic fluid's being mixed in with the water. Like, what does that look like? How can we tell that it's not working right? Uh, so you do all that. And then, of course, you have things like pH, and uh, we had uh, basically take a water sample, and then they stick it in this machine, and it stirs it, and there's like a little probe that goes in it, and it tells you what the uh, um, solubility is of it, how much how much water to, to unknown contaminant ratio it is. So it's little things like that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, people will always mess it up. Um, and so as an engineer, especially when you're do- dealing with water treatment, I feel like they're always on call. They gotta come in on weekends, uh, stuff breaks. You gotta, you know, everybody's, so that's another th- stressful thing about it too is, in some factories, if the engineers can't fix it quickly, because they have to wait on a vendor to come in and uh, fix it for them, then the assembly lines get shut down, which means those hourly guys have to go home. That means their paycheck's going to be smaller this week, so it's uh, it's very very stressful, and people get on they get heated about that. I and mean, a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck, and so you don't want to be the engineer that causes that to happen. Um, and and also engineers also have to be really good at managing their managers. So your managers are the people that give you money to be able to make pro- you know promises happen. Uh, so that's that's also something that you have to. Uh, I guess one of the stereotypes about engineers is a lot of people think they're geeky and nerdy. And they might be their freshman, sophomore year. But by the time you graduate, by the time you have experience, so far, I haven't met a a, uh, kind of your weird geeky. I mean, we're all kind of weird and geeky. But I mean, like the the really (laughs) awkward, antisocial, quiet, uh, those don't really exist in the realm that I work in. That, that's actually
0: interesting because so you have to deal with a lot of people, right? In a lot of we different do. situations, you have to deal with your vendors. You have to deal with the people you who are going to be using your uh, whatever you create. Yep. You have to deal with the people who are giving the money to you to be able to create the stuff, yep. and probably many other sets of people.
1: Yeah, you got uh, your managers telling you that they want shit done, and you're like, okay, well, uh, <laughs> let me try to let me try to get this figured out. And then you get the vendors that are promising you everything under the under the stars. And they're trying to get as much money out as you, and so you can't trust them because they're they're just they're basically okay. telling you a fairy tale. So you have to be careful with them. And then you have your operators. Um, some op- some of your operators are going to tell you how it is. Other ones are not going to talk to you at all because they, they're afraid you are going to get them in trouble. And so it's uh, I guess I can't I don't know if it's a sociology term I can't remember where I, maybe it was sociology code switching. You know, there is basically that's just it's yeah. this uh, it's how you talk to people. Okay. So when I talk to an operator, um, I talk to them like, I'm an operator, you know, tell stories about your kids, cuss a little bit, you know, you just hang out, I mean, if you, whatever it takes to kind of figure out what they're doing, uh, to, for them to kind of trust you, and then to always sell your solutions in two ways, one, to save the company money, but to also make the operator's job easier. Operators will help you if they're getting something out of it, meaning that they are making more product, which means they're going to get potentially a promotion or a bonus of some kind at the end of the year. They're going to hit their HPU, uh, which is just like their, the hourly part unit, which is like how, they, uh, how many parts they have to get during that certain period of time. Uh, but at the same time, operators are typically told by their leadership that they should not be talking to engineers because they need to be working so you have to you have to figure out when are they available to provide feedback, and then you have to communicate back to their supervisors, their line leads. Hey, we need to make sure that we set aside time for them to be able to talk to the engineers and then again, you have to go back to your managers. your managers are uh they're stressed because they just want to get product out the door. they don't really care about the solutions I feel like, and again, I'm young in this career field and all that. But to me, it kind of seems like they, uh, they're more worried about the dollars, which is good. That's the reason why we have them in that position. My job is to make you more dollars. Uh, so you have to be very, very uh, data-driven to be able to be convincing on how, why we should move in the direction we want to move. And then get buy-in from multiple people, people that have more experience than you, people that are specialists at vendors, uh, your peers, if there's more than one engineer in the same area. Uh, You should never make a solution with just one person's ideas, and for that matter, you should never solve a problem without collecting data on that problem because who's to say that the symptoms that you're seeing are related to the issues that like for example the problem you see like you had mentioned You might think it's there's all these different variables that are attached to it And I might only see one if I just try to fix that one it might work for a little bit, but then the problem might arise again, and then we might have just invested all that money into a, a solution that doesn't actually fix the problem. Um, and that happens at every big company, for sure, because uh, you, you have to characterize your... You've you got to use lean manufacturing. You've got to do factory dynamics, which is just, like, it's a holistic approach to how you run a factory. Um, yeah, i okay.
0: So you've mentioned lean manufacturing a few times, so it yeah. would be... It's kind of great if you could like expand upon what that is.
1: So lean manufacturing, I don't know who came up with it. I know that Boeing, Raytheon, uh, General Dynamics, Banks, everybody. I guess Banks don't use lean manufacturing. They use like Six Sigma. Uh, But uh, it's basically just tools that we use. Um, Things like a gimbal walk, which is just a weird word for like, I think it stands for like the actual place. I can't remember. Essentially what it is is, you, uh, you visualize the problem, you get a team together, you get all people that are in this team, you get them all to commit to solving the problem. Uh, some companies, they call that like a circle. It's basically you have like one person that's a coach, then you have subject matter experts in different areas. From there, you prioritize how every person's gonna contribute, right, because you don't want one person to come up with all the other ideas and everyone just sitting at the table, just shaking their head, yes, yeah, that sounds good. Everyone needs to come to the table with something unique, potentially addressing the areas that they are most experienced in. And then you want to characterize, that's going to come up with a, a solution to collecting data. Data things could be, I don't know, seven wastes, which is a tool, it's a Six Sigma tool, which you look at like defects and overproduction and weighting and inventory and the motion, which is like, as, you know, an operator, how many places does he have to move? Is he having to pick stuff up or she, is she having to pick stuff up? And then walk it down the line or can we automate that? Uh, and then uh, like processing, like how much labor does it take to do one thing? You have uh, failure modes, uh, effects and analysis. That's another tool um, That that basically just looks at. Like risk asses- assessment charts, and it tracks like different objectives on some of the issues. And then uh, you have like fil- failure and severity calculations. And so, that what that does is it allows you to prioritize the worst effects first, solve those, and then work your way down. Um, so, like if there's a single point failure in a particular process, you probably want to fix that before you worry about making sure that the floor stay clean, you know, little things like that. But yeah, lean manufacturing, is just the idea. I mean, there's a lot of different things. It's, I mean, it would take an entire class to to learn on and I'd have to have notes in front of me, but just from like, from my memory, it's essentially the idea is you want to mitigate waste. You want to, if, if your goal is to produce this one piece of hardware, then you get one item coming in and then one item coming out of a finished product. And then every hand that is... collecting a paycheck on that assembly line makes a positive impact on that. So if you don't need them, then they shouldn't be there. They should be doing something else. And then for everything that is labor intensive, that can have human error, which human error is a terrible excuse. Usually you get your wrist slapped if you talk about human error in most places. But typically it's it's not the operator's fault. Uh, It's Like it could be like a highly repetitive process or it could be subjective. Like there's no clear way to tell if something's right or wrong. Um, And a good example of that would be like inside piping or tubing. If there's no way for the operator to look inside there and verify that it's good on the inside, it's clean, then how can you expect them to sign off on it to say that it's good to move on? And so you'd have to come up with solutions to determine that either at that station or before. Uh, And it's just lots of tracking, but ultimately uh, lean manufacturing is good because it elimin- eliminates waste increases speed of production And then it's your best opportunity at bringing in things like automation assembly lines um, Toyota is a great example. They're some of the best at it Boeing building aircraft on like literally assembly lines that are tra- like traveling hmm. That type of thing. It's kind of cool. Okay, So I,
0: I think earlier you had mentioned that uh, there are some people who don't see value in lean manufacturing. Yes. What 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 are their objections?
1: So it depends on the the world you come from. So to me, um, me personally, I'm kind of a rule follower. Always have been. So uh, I'm like a believer, I guess you could say. So when I when I learn this stuff in class and when I've gone through like six sigma training, um, I'm like, wow, this stuff's awesome. I get to me, it's it's opportunity for. Uh, to get your name on on new projects because you're collecting the data, you learn the impact, your return on investment. You have, I mean, it's there should be no reason why you shouldn't. But some people they just want to fix the problem and move on to something else. They're kind of minimalist, and using lean manufacturing and Six Sigma is very time intensive. And so, if you're in a stressful position where you have a lot of work to get done, you don't have time to uh, sit down and fill out a, an Excel spreadsheet or to collect your data samples and to build a report and to assemble a team and then get buy-in from people that don't even know your process that are going to slow you down, essentially. Because some problems, honestly, can be fixed by one person. Yeah. Um, okay. So it, that's, that's the main objection. Yeah, you know. okay. yeah, and so some people are just like, it's a waste of time, there's no value added. And so they're looking at it from the same way that I'm looking at it from an operator, right? I don't want my operator to touch anything unless it's value added. But they're looking at it as if they're the operator. I don't want to fill out any paperwork unless it's value added. The thing is, is it, and that might be a little short-sighted, because if you are to do lean manufacturing on everything that you touch, yeah, you might not get as much work done, but the work you do have, you're gonna have data to back up every decision you made. And there's two things that it helps you with. At the end of the year, you can add all that up, and then you have one big. This is how much money I contributed to the company. And if you're like, if you're award driven, or if there's bonuses that get allocated to your company, they need some kind of a discriminating factor to for for you and your uh, your peers. You want that data because they're gonna challenge you on it as soon as you bring it up. I see you guys 25 million this year, they're going to say, how? Where's the data? And so if you start collecting it from day one, it takes a little bit slower to, to accomplish projects, so be it. Um, so that's, that's kind of the difference. Some people, they aren't. Some people, they're not goal-oriented. They're not award-driven. They just want to collect your paycheck and go home and play video games, or, you know, play with your kids, yeah. take naps. So uh, it really just depends on what you want to eat. Do you want to be a manager someday? Because that's what managers are going to be asked to do, is managing data, managing trends, uh, that type of thing. So that's where I want to be someday. So that's why I'm I'm a little more focused on it. Okay, that's that's pretty cool. Um, so what I was
0: what I wanted to do now is uh, um, you've had a relatively int- pretty interesting life. Uh, you've uh, you were in the air force, yeah. then you've gone back to study, and now mm-hmm. you, you you've interned at a few interesting places, and now. Um, you're going to be graduating pretty soon, right? So can you just take me through your history from your undergraduate to now?
1: Sure, yeah, so I went to, I graduated high school in 2010, went to Texas Tech for one year, I wanted to be a civil engineer. Um, My parents are just like most people in America, we're just, we're barely middle class, they couldn't afford to help me even with rent. And so I found myself working uh, a bunch of part-time jobs just to be able to pay for school. And that was even, on. I'm talking just to feed myself and pay for rent. Um, Because in the dorms, at least at my school, it's like, if you do the math, it's like $900 a month to stay in the dorms. So, and, and that, it's just, it was too expensive and I couldn't afford it. My parents were already hurting themselves uh, so I didn't really have any financial support. So basically what happened was, uh, I got to the point in my life where I was like, I know I want to be an engineer. Like I was so inspired by it, I, uh, but I wasn't a strong academic because I was not studying. I was busy working all these part-time jobs. And so I had to make a decision because my brother is three years younger than me and he was trying to go to college too and I knew what was going to happen because this was a conversation that we were having with our parents was they were basically asking me to drop out at Texas Tech and go to a community college so that we could, my brother and I could both like work and pay for our classes one at a time. And so I kind of had that big brother moment where I was like, well, I really want my brother to be able to go to college. And our grandparents were willing to co-sign, but they don't really have credit because they're farmers and they own everything they've had and they're retired. And so uh, we tried getting them to co-sign on both of us, and it was not enough to cover either of us to go to college. It was enough to cover one person, if there was only one person co-signing. My parents have, they don't have the best credit history, so they couldn't really co-sign on anything, which made things worse. So I I made the decision to enlist, because I knew that there was education benefits involved, and I knew that I was gonna be wiser and harder working and more disciplined once I had military experience behind me, Uh, and knowing that I wanted to be an engineer, I was worried that I was gonna have to settle for a lesser degree in something like business. Something that I knew that I could be successful at, but that it wouldn't be, like, what... What do you want to do? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, long story short, joined the Air Force, did really well. I got the job I wanted, which was bioenvironmental engineering, industrial hygiene and preventative medicine. Got to deploy and do a bunch of uh, chemical weapons search and seizure. Uh, That was pretty neat. Um, I did four years, actually three years and nine months um, I left early just because I had really great mentors that encouraged me to go back to school. And I had the buy-in from my wing commander who uh, was willing to let me start um, school in the fall uh, because I was gonna end my enlistment in October and so I was gonna have like, a couple of months. I was just gonna have to wait until January to start school and, and so it would have been a couple months where I wasn't collecting a paycheck but still had all these adult bills to take care of. Um, and that's the hardest thing I think about leaving the Air Force is, uh, I mean, you accumulate all this, like, routine debt, right? Your cell phone and your living expenses, your car payment. When you go to college, there's not really anything to help pay for that. So unless you own everything outright, a lot of veterans, um, they go back living with their parents, believe it or not. We not going to do that. My parents were going to let me come home anyways. So I went back to Texas Tech. I chose Texas Tech instead of another school. Um, I probably could have gone anywhere I wanted. Um, I did some campus tours, a couple of different schools. One of them was Yale, didn't really like that one. a uh, and UT. I really was kind of, what made me go back to Texas Tech was because I had some different classes there. And when I went back and toured, uh, professors actually reached out to me and gave me like a private tour. They were like, oh, yeah, why don't you come back here? And they were you know, former civil engineering Air Force officers back in the day, they found out I was coming back, and they immediately became, like, my best friend. They were, like, just showing me everything, and I I really felt special to them. And so that was the reason why I came back. And then I I was going to do civil again, but then I heard about environmental, and that was kind of what I did in the Air Force, and so I wanted my military experience to complement my my degree, which would also support my civilian career. Uh, And so then... um, I decided I wanted to do internships right away, Uh, defense contractors obviously like military, so I did two internships at General Dynamics, and then I did an internship, a co-op, an internship at Raytheon, Um, and then that's it, that's pretty much everything I did. One thing that's unique about me that most veterans don't do is uh, I'm I'm a big believer in professional development and leadership. And so, I mean, I was just a young guy in the Air Force, made E5, and then immediately got out. So I didn't really get any leadership experience from, like, a traditional system. Uh, a lot of it was, like, volunteerism leadership. And so uh, when I came back to school, I made sure that I, you know, ran for, you know, clubs, ran for the president roles there. And I worked my way all the way up to graduate vice president for the student body uh, so it's uh, you know was involved in like student government the whole time, and I found that being in those leadership roles not only made me a better student but also was able to help me mentor people around me, um, and it's only made me a more successful student. I think I took that military mindset of being um, strict and disciplined in everything I do, and kept things professional. I'm not just wasting away at home chilling. I mean I'm like. I feel like I make an impact on, on campus. You know, I give campus tours to incoming engineering students, do all that type of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to graduate. I feel like I've, I've been in school for a few years now. Uh, getting a master's degree in environmental engineering has been a 10-year goal for me ever since I left in 2011. So I'll be graduating in 2020, and um, it's pretty exciting to be able to say that you can complete a 10-year goal. I feel like most people, their, their goals... And priorities in life change in ten years, yeah. and so uh, you don't. Nec- I mean, unless you're getting a Ph.D. or something, then maybe you'll accomplish a ten-year goal. But I feel like most people they just move from one goal to the other, hmm. and it's difficult to predict. You know what's going to be meaningful to you in the future. So it's uh, it's been a it's been a fun ride. I've really appreciated uh, all the opportunities that have been given by both my employers and friends and professors.
0: Um, so one thing which I do have to touch on just because it's pretty funny is you were on the ISIS hit list Not just funny. It's kind of scary yeah. as well, <laughs> but yeah,
1: <laughs> it's not too big of a deal um, So basically how that happened was I want to say it was 2014 Yeah, it was the beginning of 2014. I don't it's been a while. So i mean, see so long story short essentially some idiots on social media uh, they decided it would be really cool to, to create, like, a top 100 ISIS hit list. And there was absolutely no intelligence gathered to build this list. And so what I mean by that is if you just... So the bad guys know what planes fly over the combat zones, right? And so they're like, a B-1. Where do the B-1s, where do those go? Oh, Dias Air Force Base. Okay. And so then they Google Dias Air Force Base. Common knowledge, right? You see pretty pictures of B-1s on their 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 uh, website pages well at the same time I had won a bunch of annual awards had some really cool pictures that our public affairs officers and corps were so gracious enough to write news articles about me and to celebrate my accomplishments Um, those same pictures and awards were also the first thing that you google and since I have a unique name um, I got thrown on the list uh, it was a big deal when it first happened. Now th- the bad guys are essentially gone. And then every so often... I mean, now there's one that had 2,000 names. There's another one. You look, there's like 8,000 names. They just keep adding and growing and growing. Um, it was kind of interesting like how I got put on it. But, so, yeah, how, just guilty how, how by association.
0: You, yeah, How did you find out about it?
1: So uh, I was actually... I was doing part-time school. I was working up on, on my military base. And I had a... A really nice cubicle at work that had dual monitors and and no distractions. And so I would I would go up to the office on the weekends to work on schoolwork. And uh, we were actually planning a, our officer. I want to say it was a birthday or something. I can't remember. Anyways, we had a bunch of balloons and and like you know funfetti and stuff. We were gonna we're just gonna trash his office with it. So I was actually filling balloons. Um, and I get a phone call from my first sergeant, and then I'm like, "Why is he calling me? Didn't answer." He calls me again, like 30 seconds later. I'm like, "Well, it must be an emergency if he's repeatedly calling me." So I answer it. And I'm like, "Hello," and he asked me where I was at, and I was like, "Um, up here at work, working on schoolwork." Why? And he was like, "Okay, I want you to stay there. I need to, I need to come swing by and talk to you. I need to pick you up for something." And That's all he said. And so I figured somebody had said something on social media or, you know, that they knew we were going to be pranking our officer or worse yet, you know, there was some enlisted party that somebody got in trouble at and somehow my name was thrown in there. Uh, Since I had uh, our first sergeant was, was a, uh, let's just say that he was always over at our, at our area because... We, were, we had a lot of really good airmen over there, and so we won a lot of awards, and so he was he was really well connected to our flight. A flight's kind of like a smaller, specific unit, okay. all of the bio people, and so I, I mean, he used to come around and hang out with us all the time. We had a heritage room and all that, so I didn't, we had a good relationship with him. So I'm, I'm waiting there for him, and he like rolls up, and it wasn't his car, it was our uh, group commander's Cadillac and our, so our commander's driving he's in the passenger seat and they roll up to the building and they come knocking on the door and they open it they're like hey uh I don't know if you've heard but you're on this list and we need to go brief you at the OSI office which is Office of Special Investigation. I was like okay all right and so just in civilian clothes we hop in the car we drive over there we go to the med group first and our uh, commander gets some stuff out of his office. I think it was like a notepad or something. Um, We walk in there and there's like a basement. I didn't even know there was a basement existed in this building. So there's some like random door. We go down there and it had everything from like my MySpace to my Facebook. It had my LinkedIn profile. It had all the news articles that had pictures of me. It It was everything. And they had been assessing pretty much all of my social media. And they told me that I was on the list. And so um, wasn't really a big deal, uh, at the time. I mean, there was hundreds of other people. There was a couple other people at our base that w- had also been on the list because of the B1 situation. Um, it didn't really frighten me at all. Wasn't concerned about it. Uh, it definitely frightened my parents though. They weren't very excited about it. So, um, so I don't really, it's not new, really newsworthy to me anymore. It was a little scary, a little exciting, uh, made you feel kind of like a celebrity for a little bit. Um. But then you kind of you realize that it hurts people's feelings when you, when you do that to people. So um, people like to be recognized for positive things. Um, I'm hoping that they've decided to change what they do, at least in the Air Force. It's a good idea to maybe not post a bunch of PR articles to the public where you know people can find that out. Me, it was an issue. My parents have never moved from the house we grew up in, and that's very uncommon. And we have a really unique last name, so that made it even easier to track us down. So moral of the story is move frequently, (laughs) either upgrade, promote, whatever. Um, Pay to have the services where they remove you from yellow pages, white pages, whatever. Uh, Keep keep all that information secret, because you don't want people to be able to, to Google where you live um, it's just not a good idea cool.
0: okay Th- thanks a lot for that Adam and uh, yeah. if there anything else you want to add or...
1: no I just really appreciate your time it was, it was fun talking about problem solving and, and random Air Force stories so uh, good luck and uh, we'll talk to you soon
0: Okay, thanks a lot and yeah, good luck with your graduation and what's to come after that <laughs> thanks Unless you forward it to the end of the podcast without listening, given that you've arrived here, assume you found the podcast at least mildly tolerable. Assuming that is the case, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and share the podcast with those who you think may be interested. It would also be great if you could rate the podcast in Apple Podcast. Uh, well, assuming you give it a good rating. Uh, that really helps others discover it. You might also enjoy visiting Think's website, www.think.education. Think is spelled T H I N Q. There you will find articles, videos, and educational material which aim to develop inquiry and critical thinking abilities. You can also follow Think on our various social media channels to get updates on webinars, courses, and new content. I would like to thank Vedant Chandra for the theme music and Malika Nanda for the podcast artwork. See you next time.